Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, May 7, 2019, is a distinguished Lehrman Fellow at NYHS Lecture. In this talk, historian Andrew Roberts discusses Winston Churchill's sense of history and how this informed his politics and worldview. Behind my desk in my study at home hangs a framed letter from Aldous Huxley, written from Daniel Deronda Drive in Los Angeles in November 1959, which states that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of the lessons that history has to teach us. (laughs) One person who devoutly believed that it was possible, indeed urgently necessary, to learn from the lessons of history was Sir Winston Churchill. Indeed, one of the things that makes me proud to be an historian is that despite the occupational hazards of my trade, which I like to summarise as penury, pedantry and punditry, um, (laughs) Churchill nonetheless chose it as his. More than anything, except perhaps a soldier statesman, Churchill thought of himself as an historian. Moreover, he saw the roles of statesman and soldier as being heavily dependent on having a deep knowledge of the past. He constantly saw his own life and career through the prism of history, and he was all the greater soldier and, indeed, statesman and person for it. As the British politician Enoch Powell said of Churchill, it is not so much the triumph of distant, deductive reasoning as the long vista of historical and personal memory, which, while others were still blind, revealed to him the nature and inevitable outcome of the resurgent German Empire. He was a man who thought with his memory. I think it's extremely difficult for anyone not born into Churchill's world or time, Sir Jack Plum wrote in The Dominion of the Past, to realise what a dominance of the past, uh, sorry, what a dominance the past had over all his thinking and action. Difficult, perhaps, but let's try. In Churchill's very first formal public speech near Bath in 1897, he made reference to history, saying... These are not, sorry, there are not wanting those who say that in this jubilee year, it was uh, the Queen's golden jubilee, the Queen Empress's golden jubilee, our empire has reached the height of its glory and power, and that now we shall begin, begin to decline as Babylon, Carthage, and Rome declined. Do not believe these croakers, but give the lie to their dismal croaking by show, showing by our actions that the vigour and vitality of our race is unimpaired. Churchill liked to compare the British Empire to that of Rome. It gave historical context to what he hoped Britain could achieve and induced pride in his audiences. From his Bath speech onwards, references to history were a mainstay of his writing, thought and speeches. And to give a flavour of this, I'd like to throw a few buckets over into the ocean that is Churchill's 8,000 pages of speeches and 5.2 million published words. (laughs) and examine what we find about this ever-present phenomenon in his life and thought. For Churchill did not just use history in his perorations, like other politicians, in order to stiffen the sinews and summon up the blood. Instead, he employed it in the body of his argument, 
for he truly believed that his generation had a duty to continue Britain's work, which he saw in the classically Whiggish way of being at the forefront of human progress. Much of the pugnacity that served Churchill so well in 1940 and 1941 stemmed directly from this belief that the British Empire had an historical duty to fulfil, and his contemporaries would be betraying their forefathers if they stepped back from it. When the Chinese government demanded the port of Wai Weiwei to be returned to them in the early 1920s, for example, he asked the cabinet rhetorically, why should we melt down our moral capital collected by our forefathers to please a lot of pacifists? I would, telegram, I would send a telegram beginning, nothing for nothing and precious little for tuppence. <laughs> the school songs Churchill had learnt at Harrow taught him that the essentials in history did not change and he must strive, like his predecessors, if he had wanted greatness. In December 1906, thanking a Mr J.H. Anderson, we don't know anything else about Mr Anderson, for sending him an account of Sir John Moore's campaign in the Iberian Peninsula in 1808, Churchill wrote of warfare, It is all one story, in spite of every change in weapons, from the sheep under whose bellies Ulysses escaped from the cave of the Cyclops to the oxen, which De Wet broke the blockhouse line in the Orange Free State. The latter was a reference uh, to the ambush at uh, one of the drifts in the Boer War. He was perfectly willing to extend glorious historical references to the British Empire's enemies, too. In August 1909, the Indian revolutionary Maiden Lal Dingra was hanged at Pentonville Prison in London for the assassination of the British civil servant Sir Curzon Wiley. Quote, the only lesson required in India at present is to learn how to die. These were Dingra's last words. And the only way to teach it is by dying ourselves. Therefore I die, and glory in my martyrdom. Churchill told the diarist Wilfred Scorn Blunt that Dingra would be remembered in 2,000 years' time, quote, as we remember Regulus and Caractacus and Plutarch's heroes. And he quoted Dingra's last words as the finest ever made in the name of patriotism. The problem today, of course, is that because they're not taught in schools, we ourselves do not remember Regulus and Caractacus and Plutarch's heroes. <laughs> As illustrated by the recent survey in which 30% of British schoolchildren um, who were polled believed that the American War of Independence had been won by Denzel Washington. <laughs> I don't know what you're laughing about, ladies and gentlemen. That's not funny at all. It's monstrous. <laughs> Churchill's famous row with King George V over the naming of battle, uh, battleships that dragged on between 1911 um, to 1913 was essentially about history. Although the king claimed not to have wanted Oliver Cromwell's name immortalised because of his brutal repression of Catholic Ireland in the mid-17th century, uh, fearing that it might inflame nationalism there, in fact, it was probably Churchill's chopping off of a king's head to which he truly took exception. <laughs> Yet Churchill admired Cromwell as the founding of the, uh, founder of the powers of Parliament, a friend of the Jews, and the, rebuilding, um, the rebuilder of the British Navy. Even Churchill's promotion of the name of William Pitt for a battleship in August 1913 prompted the king to complain that Pitt was neither euphonious nor dignified. There is, moreover... Always the danger of men giving the ship nicknames of ill-conditioned words rhyming with it. Uh, His Majesty had been a sailor um, and wasn't above the odd scatological reference. 
he had what one might call a Hanoverian sense of humour. When, in March 1911, Churchill sought to head off the full rigours of Irish Home Rule and presented the Cabinet with a plan for the federal devolution of Britain into seven regions, he delved into history to describe it as the Heptarchy, the name originally given to the seven kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England from the 5th to the 9th centuries. It never came about. But the point about Churchill's instinctive reach towards history to justify present policy was not that he was right or that it always worked. It very often didn't. But that was where he looked for first. Feeling himself on much stronger ground than his contemporaries who made use of arguments based on economics and culture, religion and so on. On the day that World War I broke out, Tuesday the 4th of August 1914, Churchill exclaimed to the Prime Minister's wife, Margot Asquith, My God, this is living history. Everything we're doing and saying is thrilling. It will be read by a thousand generations. Think of that. The war gave Churchill many opportunities for calling history in aid, as on the 23rd of May 1916, when he said in a speech in support of compulsory conscription, If the Germans are to be beaten decisively... They will be beaten like Napoleon was beaten and like the Confederates were beaten. That is to say, by being opposed by superior numbers along fronts so extensive that they cannot maintain them or replace the losses incurred along them. It took more than two years of slaughter before this analogy was proved correct. During the hard-fought discussions over intervention in the Russian Civil War, Churchill similarly had frequent recourse to historical parallels, as on the 29th of July 1919, when, in the face of the Prime Minister David Lloyd George's demands that all British forces in Russia be evacuated, he said, the whole episode was a very painful one, and to go back into history reminded him of our operations at Toulon and our desertion of the Catalans. The latter was a reference to a botched effort in 1813 to open a second front in eastern Spain during the Napoleonic Wars. But it was instructive that the knowledge of history was so deep in the cabinet of a century ago that Churchill could reasonably assume that they'd not only pick up the reference but find a, a telling one. If one mentioned the siege of Toulon or the desertion of the Catalans um, to today's cabinet, there are literally only two members who would know what on earth you were talking about, uh, and, only, and um, one of them only entered the cabinet last week. <laughs> that same year, 1919, at a lunch at the Savoy Hotel uh, for John Alcock and Arthur Brown, who had flown over the Atlantic for the first time, Churchill equated the two heroes to Christopher Columbus saying, we're in the presence of another event of something like the same order as that stupendous event which revealed to Europe and Asia the boundless glories and possibilities of the new world across the Atlantic Ocean. The following year, in February 1920, during a defence debate, he tried to find an historical equivalent to the British Empire's ability to maintain its authority over more than one-fifth of the world's population, with fewer than a quarter of a million British soldiers – many of whom were stationed in Aldershot rather than at Bangalore. To find a parallel, he said, you have to go back to the greatest period of the Roman Empire, to the age of the Antonines, for so great and so wide a peace being sustained upon so slender an armed force. The empire could not be but a tremendous source of pride to Churchill and his generation, however much today we're told that it ought to have been a source of shame. Mongolians are allowed to feel pride in the exploits of Kublai and Genghis Khan. 
Zulus can legitimately glory in the name of Shaka Zulu. The Portuguese put up statues to Henry the Navigator, the French admire Napoleon, and the centre of the Italian capital is consecrated to the splendour of the Forum and Senate of ancient Rome. Only one people on earth, ladies and gentlemen, are taught now from birth to despise and feel ashamed of their imperial moment in the sun, and they are the modern-day British. Because, of course, today we know that the British Empire in, in India was evil and wrong, uh, because we're taught that constantly in our schools and universities and uh, on the BBC. But poor Winston Churchill, in his ignorance, uh, could not know that Britain was viciously exploiting India uh, and giving absolutely nothing back in return. Well, I, I suppose, except for internal peace for the first time in Indian history, uh, as well as railways, largest railways in the world outside America. Irrigation projects, of course, that uh, increased land under cultivation by eight times the political unity of the entire uh, subcontinent for the first and only time in its history. Obviously, mass education and newspapers and unprecedented amounts of international trade protected from piracy by the Royal Navy and standardised units of uh, measurement and exchange and its first universities. Oh, and, and well-funded roads and aqueducts and bridges and docks <laughs> and other huge infrastructure projects and the abolition of sati, that revolting practice of burning widows on funeral pyres, uh, and of tuggy, the ritualised murder of uh, travellers, and instituting the only incorrupt civil service uh, and legal system in the history of the subcontinent, and the promotion of industrial development, and obviously uh, unprecedented uh, projects to fight disease and the English language as the first national tongue, allowing Indians to conduct a national conversation for the first time and telegraphic communications, um, and two centuries of protection from the Russians, French, Afghan, Afridi, Taleb, and other foreign outside threats, including later, of course, the one from Imperial Japan in, in World War II. But apart from those... <coughs> oh, and more than doubling Indian life expectancy. Uh, what did the British Empire ever do for India? How strange it is that the past is so little understood and so quickly forgotten... Churchill wrote to his friend Catherine Asquith about his recently published book, The Aftermath, in April 1929. We live in the most thoughtless of ages. Every day, headlines and short views. I've tried to drag history up a little nearer to our own times in case it should be helpful as a guide in present difficulties. His wilderness years in the 1930s were largely spent writing history, as well as, of course, warning against Adolf Hitler. He had a passion for old traditions, a great sense of history, Harold Macmillan said in his, um, in his oration in the other club when Churchill died. I think perhaps his ten years out of office when he was writing the life of his great ancestor, Marlborough, laid the basis for this greatness. Those were Macmillan's views. Once he'd finished Marlborough, Churchill started work on another history book, his History of the English-Speaking Peoples. He was not writing these books merely for the pleasure of academic research, fun though that was for him. It was always with the motive that history would be, as he put it, helpful as a guide in present difficulties. Days after Anthony Eden resigned as Foreign Secretary in February 1938, Churchill wrote to his friend Eddie Marsh, sending him the proofs of the fourth volume of Marlborough, saying, I hope it will bring home to modern readers the life and drama of that great age, how like their forerunners the modern Tories are. Even though Churchill didn't necessarily believe in the immortal soul, he did care greatly about what the future would make of the present. 
in his great anti-appeasement speech of the 24th of March 1938, he said, look back upon the last five years, since, that is to say, Germany began to rearm in earnest and openly to seek revenge. If we study the history of Rome and Carthage, we can understand what happened and why. It's not difficult to form an intelligent view about the three Punic Wars, but if mortal catastrophe should overtake the British nation and the British Empire, historians a thousand years hence will still be baffled by the mystery of our affairs. During the Second World War, Churchill put his knowledge of the importance of the personal relations between Marlborough and Prince Eugen of Savoy to good use in his own relations with President Roosevelt. Writing this new fact... Sorry, without this new fact at the Allied headquarters, he'd written of Marlborough's great friendship with Eugen. The extraordinary operations which these chapters described, so intricate, so prolonged, and contrary on so many occasions to the accepted principles of war, could never have been achieved. He wrote that, ladies and gentlemen, in 1934, seven years before he met FDR at Newfoundland. In the peroration of his speech attacking the Munich settlement... Uh, the great speech of uh, the 5th of October, 1938, which I personally consider one of his three greatest speeches of his life. Churchill said, Do not suppose that this is the end. This is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first sip, the first foretaste of a bitter cup, which will be proffered to us year by year, unless by a supreme recovery of moral health and martial vigour we arise again and take our stand for freedom as in the olden time." That knowledge suffused in him after a lifetime of reading and writing history that Britain was not as morally healthy as she had been in the olden time tormented him. Yet by articulating it, he was able to taunt the British people into slowly becoming as brave and as morally vigorous and as martially healthy as he. It's not too much to say that without his lively historical imagination and sensibility, Churchill could not have warned Britain and the world of what he was to call, with another powerful historical analogy, a new dark age. Once again, that analogy would also fall flat were any politician unwise enough to try to employ it today. The dark ages are largely untaught today in British schools. During the Munich speech, Churchill also told the Commons, in my holiday, I thought it was a chance um, to study the reign of King Ethelred the Unready, the House will remember that that was a period of great misfortune in which, from the strong position which we have gained under the descendants of King Alfred, we fell very swiftly into the chaos. It was a period of Danegeld and of foreign pressure. His reading of history thus directly affected his outlook on appeasement and in a wholly positive way. As the war clouds gathered, Churchill took more refuge in British history rather than less, especially in those periods of history where the nation had survived similar perils. Thus, on the 3rd of April 1939, he reminded the British people, we read how, when Napoleon's army lay at Boulogne 140 years ago, the threat of invasion hung over this country from day to day, dependent upon the shift of the wind. Our ancestors showed qualities of doggedness and phlegm deemed remarkable by all who observed it. But that is nothing to the ordeal which the British nation is today facing with complete composure. Nothing with which Napoleon threatened England is half as intimate or direct as the destruction and ordeal which would fall upon this country should we be involved in a modern war. After that war had started, Churchill invited the victorious crews of HMS Exeter and Ajax, who had been involved in the scuttling of the German battleship, the Graf Spee, 
to a celebratory dinner at the Guildhall, where he told them, The warrior heroes of the past may look down as Nelson's monument looks down upon us now, without any feeling that the island race has lost its daring, or that the examples they set in bygone centuries have faded as the generations have succeeded one another. This placing of their heroism in the precise historical context of similar threats to Britain in the past was an integral part of his wartime morale-boosting speeches. In late April 1940, while the Norwegian campaign was being fought, he was somehow able, at 11 o'clock at night, to discuss with his research assistant Bill Deakin and his godson Freddie Birkenhead the strategic position facing King Harold of Wessex during the Norman Conquest. Deakin recalled how, despite naval signals being brought in by admirals as the battle progressed, talk ranged around the spreading shadows of the Norman invasion and the figure of Edward the Confessor, who, as Churchill wrote, comes down to us faint, misty, frail. I can still see the map on the wall with the dispositions of the British fleet off Norway and the voice of the First Lord as he grasped with his usual insight the strategic position in 1066. But this was no lack of attention to current business. It was the measure of the man with his supreme historical eye. The distant episodes were as real and as, and as close as the mighty events on hand. Once Churchill became Prime Minister a few days later, his historian's use of the past as a tool for working out where Britain was in the present became, if anything, even more pronounced. A recent article in a Polish historical journal has... um, Actually, it might well be an American historical journal written by a a Pole, in fact, um, has estimated that as much as 10% of Churchill's most important speeches of this time were taken up with history. Montgomery recalled, General um, Bernard uh, Montgomery recalled, how in July 1940, Churchill asked General Sir Alan Brooke whether England had been in such straits since the Spanish Armada. Yet, as Monty wrote, he showed no outward signs of anxiety in public. In a discussion at Chequers on the 9th of August 1940, Churchill observed of the stand of the 30th Motor Division and the um, 3rd Royal Tank Regiment that May that, quote, the men of Calais were the bit of grit that saved us by stopping them as Sidney Smith stopped Napoleon at Acre. Grit was needed in May 1940 to prevent Lord Halifax undertaking peace negotiations with Hitler. And once again, Churchill called history to his aid. Nations which went down fighting rose again, he told the War Cabinet during one of the most tense discussions. But those that tamely surrendered were finished. He didn't say which nations he believed were in either category, but he was probably speaking of nations like Holland and Poland in the first, which had been invaded many times but were always resuscitated, and perhaps the experience of Spain after her defeat in the War of 1898 in the second category. The references to the Napoleonic Wars in speeches, letters, conversations, the movies he watched and books he read during the war undoubtedly profoundly influenced the grand strategy that Britain adopted. From 1793 till 1812, Britain avoided major continental commitments of troops until her antagonist had first blunted and then broken his army in the wastes of Russia. In fact, you can take that up to 1814, really. William Pitt and then Lord Liverpool had played a waiting game, trusting Napoleon to overextend himself and in the meantime confining themselves with 
peripheral attacks in the Iberian Peninsula and elsewhere that harassed and frustrated their enemy, but only finally crossed the channel in 1815 to deliver the crushing blow when they judged that Napoleon was ready to meet his Waterloo. Churchill largely copied that strategy and, of course, persuaded the Americans to adopt it too. We've crossed the mysterious boundary which separates the present from the past, Churchill wrote in his article, Old Battlefields of Virginia, in 1929. We've entered the domain of history. And when America's entry into the Second World War took place in December 1941, Churchill was to cross that mysterious boundary several more times to fortify his listeners with the understanding that sometimes only history can give. Some said Americans were soft, he said, of the period immediately after Pearl Harbor. They would never stand the bloodletting. But I have studied the Civil War fought to the last desperate inch. By total contrast, Hitler told Molotov that Americans were too decadent to make any difference on any European battlefield until the year 1970. Because of Churchill's projectionist's notebook, we know every movie that he watched at Chequers between March 1942 and April 1943. There were no fewer than 86 of them, uh, at least one and usually two for every night he stayed there. The most watched was That Hamilton Woman, in which Laurence Olivier played Admiral Nelson. But other historical dramas included Cardinal Richelieu, The Young Mr Pitt, Mr Lincoln, Stanley and Livingston, and Peter the Great. Immersing himself in history in this way helped Churchill rivet the Allies' wartime roles into the rich panoply of the past. We must regard the next week or so as a very important period in our history, Churchill told the world on September the 11th, 1940, as the Battle of Britain reached its height. It ranks with the days when the Spanish Armada were approaching the Channel and Drake was finishing his game of bowls, or when Nelson stood between us and Napoleon's Grand Army at Boulogne. We have read all about this in the history books, but what is happening now is on a far greater scale and of far more consequence to the life and future of the world and its civilization than these brave old days of the past. As the Canadian diplomat Charles Ritchie wrote in his diary of the effect of that speech on Britons, he makes them feel they are living their history. To paraphrase Ed Murrow, Churchill didn't just send the English language into battle, he sent English history into battle too. The effect of telling people that they had the eye of history upon them had the tangible effect of encouraging them to behave in a better, braver, more noble way, to carry themselves in such a way that for the rest of their lives they would deserve his sobriquet for them of their finest hour. In January 1941, FDR's envoy, Harry Hopkins, noted how often Churchill pondered history, writing of how he was involved not only in the battles of the current war, but of the whole past from Cannae to Gallipoli. That March, when Churchill's son-in-law, Duncan Sands, wanted to destroy the German cities and factories so that for years the German people might be occupied in reconstruction, Churchill cited an incident in ancient Greece when the Athenians spared a city which had massacred some of its citizens, not because its inhabitants were men, but because of the nature of man. Even before Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, Churchill gave his family and Jock Colville, his private secretary, a short lecture on the various invaders of Russia, especially Charles XII. In his speech at Bristol University in April 1941, the day after a heavy bombardment, he commended the inhabitants' mark of fortitude and phlegm, of a courage and detachment from material affairs worthy of all that we have learned to believe of ancient Rome 
or of modern Greece. Greece at the time, of course, was fighting back the, uh, attempting to fight back the, um, the German invasion. A few days later, he told Britain's air raid pre uh, precaution wardens, its home guards and craftsmen and women, this is indeed the grand heroic period of our history and the light of glory shines on all. He allowed them, therefore, to see themselves as part of the great continuum of history. In the confidence uh, debate of the 7th of May 1941, Churchill was careful not to equate Napoleon, his hero, and of course uh, that of his ally, the Free French, with Hitler, saying, It must be remembered, however, that Napoleon's armies carried with them the fierce, liberating and equalitarian uh, winds of the French Revolution, whereas Hitler's empire has nothing behind it but racial self-assertion, espionage, pillage, corruption and the Prussian boot. Yet Napoleon's empire, with all its faults and with all its glories, fell and flashed away like snow at Easter, till nothing remained but his majesty's ship, Bellerophon, which awaited its suppliant refugee. Two months later, he told an old friend and comrade that he should like to see Mussolini, the bogus mimic of ancient Rome, strangled like Vercingetorix in the old Roman fashion. <laughs> On his way to meet President Roosevelt in Newfoundland in August 1941, Churchill read C.S. Forrester's splendid novel Captain Hornblower, set in the Napoleonic Wars, one of the few works of uh, fiction that he read during the war. Time and again, his military secretary, Pagesme, recalled, he would quote from Nelson's Trafalgar Memorandum, no ca captain can do very wrong if he places his ship alongside that of an enemy. It was a maritime version of the message he was trying to give his generals in North Africa at the time. On the evening before they reached their anchorage, he watched that Hamilton woman yet again for the fifth time in a month, telling his audience, gentlemen, I thought this film would interest you, showing great events similar to those in which you have been taking part. Harry Hopkins then proceeded to take seven guineas off him at backgammon. <laughs> When in September 1941 the King offered Churchill the Lord Wardenship of the Sank Ports, he accepted, despite being daunted by the cost of uh, Woolmer Castle's upkeep. Um, you had to employ 14 servants at Woolmer Castle, which you were expected to pay for yourself. And the only income uh, was the uh, proceeds of any whales that were washed up on the shore, uh, which um, were very, that, that didn't tend to happen terribly much in the Second World War. So it was, a, uh, it, was a, it was a great expense to him. But he did it because previous Lord Wardens had included Pitt the Younger, uh, Wellington and Lord Palmerston. When he heard about Pearl Harbour two months later, his first thought was that we should not be wiped out. Our history would not come to an end. He could tell immediately that the intervention of the United States would be decisive and allow British history to continue and not be snuffed out. Churchill the historian rightly did not allow non-historians to gainsay him over facts. In August 1943, he had an audience with King Farouk of Egypt in Cairo. The king stood by a large map of North Africa and put his whole hand over Cyrenaica, stating that it had all once belonged to Egypt. Churchill wasn't going to let him get away with that, and at once replied that he could not remember when. To the best of his belief, it had belonged to Turkey before the Italians took it. According to the British ambassador who was present at the, at the meeting, Sir Miles Lampson, um, he left the, this left the king, quote, rather stumped. 
Needless to say, Churchill was right. Indeed, in the 13th century BC, it was the Cyrenaican tribes that made incursions into Egypt rather than the other way around. One can't imagine what King Farouk could have been thinking of while trying to make an erroneous historical point to Winston Churchill, of all people. I have a particular interest in in King Farouk in that um, one of his mistresses, Barbara Skelton, once made a pass at me in a cab um, in in 1988. Uh, I was 25 and she was 72. Um, I would have been in a kind of sexual daisy chain, apostolic succession, if you will, uh, with Cyril Connolly, Lord Weidenfeld, the last king of Egypt, obviously, and, uh, and certainly plenty of other people. Um, we all have our regrets in life. <laughs> if this uh, lecture series actually gets turned into a book, like the last lecture series um, is being, I think we're going to edit that bit out. Okay. <laughs> Who was I? Before you, la- before you so cruelly laughed at my love life. Um, yeah, here we go. During the rest of the war, Churchill compared Auchinleck's exposed position at Alamein to Napoleon's before Austerlitz. He told Stalin about the battle, uh, battles of Ramillies and Blenheim, um, who was unimpressed and lectured Churchill back about Waterloo. Contrasted Cairo in 1942 to Napoleon's defence of Paris in 1814. And when he reached the River Maturo in Italy, he later recalled, here, Hasdrubal's defeat had sealed the fate of Carthage, so I suggested we should go across too. On the evening of his stroke in 1953, he had earlier been dilating on the influence which Italy had exercised upon the civilization of Europe, and how the Roman legions crossing the Alps bore with them something greater than they knew. This might have involved plumbing, as when he met the newspaperman Charles Eads in March 1940, uh, 1954, he said, do you realise that from the time the Romans left Britain until the arrival of the American heiresses, this country was completely without central heating? <laughs> he then went on to speculate about what the Romans did about lavatories, as he didn't think that anyone had ever found any remains of Roman lavatories in this country. I've drawn my examples, ladies and gentlemen, in this speech almost at random and could have included literally just chucking the the bucket over the side of the boat of of the ocean of Churchilliana, his quotes. Um, It's uh, literally almost at random. Um, And I could have included dozens or scores or even, even maybe hundreds of other examples of the way in which he used history. But just in this speech, in order to promote his, his views, Churchill called in aid Caractacus, Nelson, Genghis Khan, the Catalans, Napoleon, Babylon, the Norman Conquest, the Elder and Younger Pitts, Carthage, Charles I, the Armada, Cromwell, the Battles of Cannae, Blenheim, Ramillies and Austerlitz, Charles XII of Sweden, Wolf of Quebec, and the sieges of Toulon and Acre, Hasdrubal, and even Ro- ancient Roman lavatories. His historical imagination allowed to see himself in the direct line of succession from King Alfred, Marlborough, Pitt and Lloyd George as the saviour of the nation. This powerful historical sense allowed him to appreciate that he was himself the greatest of all the English tribal leaders since Queen Elizabeth I. How strange it is that the past is so little understood and so quickly forgotten, Churchill told Catherine Asquith, you'll remember. How modern those views seem today, yet how often they've been expressed in the past. Pliny, the consul, said much the same thing in his letter number 62 to Albinus, and he died in 115 AD. 
All this goes to remind us that the point of historical societies, such as this one, is not simply that we should try to expand our horizons to exhibit beautiful and thought-provoking artefacts, to try to stimulate our brains and hopefully to have an enjoyable evening out in the process. Those things are all worthy and laudable, of course, but the real stimulus has to be much more profound. It has to be that we must try to make practical sense of the past, to learn the lessons of the life experiences of the millions who have gone before us and harness them in order to heed their wisdom and hopefully to avoid their mistakes. What is done here, ladies and gentlemen, history, matters. And nothing illustrates that better than the life and career of one of the great historians, Sir Winston Churchill. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Right, we've got a whole load of questions here. Um, I'm going to um, answer the easiest ones. <laughs> Why did Winston Churchill know so early on that, his, uh, that Hitler was a real threat? Good question. Uh, well, one of the reasons was that he was an historian, and he was capable, therefore, of placing the... Um, the existential threat posed by Hitler and the Nazis into that long continuum that I mentioned of British history, um, which starts with the Spanish Armada and the threat from... It doesn't start with it, but in the, in the modern era it starts with it, um, in, uh, in 1588, and then goes on to the threat posed by Louis XIV, the um, French king who attempted to hegemonise the continent and upset the balance of power in Europe, which, of course, his own, Churchill's own great ancestor, the first Duke of Marlborough, um, stopped in the War of Spanish Succession. And then on to Napoleon, and he was a great admirer of Napoleon. He, li he loved Napoleon for Napoleon's sense of destiny, Napoleon's ambition, connected to uh, Napoleon's great, um, great talents. But he also, of course, recognised the threat that Napoleon posed to the balance of power in Europe. Um, and then on to the Kaiser, against whom he himself had, had fought in the trenches of the First World War, and, uh, and then Hitler. So it was one of the reasons, there are lots of other reasons as well, that Churchill was able to spot the Nazis so early. He was a philo-Semite. Uh, he, all his life he had liked Jews, he'd got on well with Jews, his father had liked Jews, he, was, he felt comfortable with them, he was a Zionist and he admired the contributions that Jews made to uh, Western civilization. And so as a result, uh, he was, had an early warning system when it came to Hitler and the Nazis that was not vouchsafed to many of the other people on, his, uh, on the same benches, parliamentary benches as him, many of whom were anti-Semitic, of course. Um, and he was also somebody who had seen fanaticism up close and uh, in his own life in, uh, in the Sudan and the Northwest Frontier and so on, uh, in a way that the other prime ministers of the 1930s certainly had never seen that kind of fanaticism of the Nazis before in their lives. So there are plenty of reasons um, that he was not only the first, but for many, many years in the 1930s, the only major British politician to, um, to be able to warn against Hitler and, and the Nazis, and not just make 
airy-fairy um, uh, warnings. He made absolutely specific warnings. And he also, as well as warnings, he actually said what should be done about it, i.e. large-scale rearmament, especially in the air. So, um, so I do place Churchill's being an historian. I should have mentioned this in the speech. I, uh, I apologise. As being a, um, a central aspect of uh, why he was able to, um, to warn so early. If Churchill had become Prime Minister sooner, would World War II have been avoided or reduced in length and size without Chamberlain and his policy of appeasement? Yes, if Churchill had become Prime Minister earlier, which politically, unfortunately, was entirely impossible, it took the Second World War for Churchill to become Prime Minister. Um, such was the, um, the nature of politics and also the distrust that Churchill himself um, had over his career um, built up. Nonetheless, had he become Prime Minister earlier, and by earlier I mean much earlier in the 1930s, say the mid-1930s, and the government done what uh, he was um, pushing for and pressing for uh, from the early 1930s onwards, really from the rise of Hitler uh, to, the, uh, to the chancellorship, um, we would have done three things. The first is massive rearmaments, as I mentioned, especially in the air, so that um, the situation that we got to by the time of the Battle of Britain in 1940 would have been just technologically impossible. The second, um, and we'd have also created a bomber, a bomber fleet that could have threatened Berlin in exactly the same way that, um, that the Germans were able to threaten London during the Blitz, um, which wasn't actually possible for us really until 1942. The second thing is that he would have um, gone full out to try to encourage um, the Soviet Union to enter uh, a cordon sanitaire um, with the rest of the, um, of the European countries who were fearful of the Nazis. And he wouldn't have held, allowed ideological considerations to have held him back from creating a proper uh, encirclement policy of, of Nazi Germany. And the third thing is that he would, perhaps impossible in this sense, you know more about uh, American politics at that period than, than me, nonetheless, he would have, he would have taken every, um, every olive branch that was open to Britain by the Roosevelt administration and grabbed it and done as much as humanly possible with it. As it was, uh, this was it, they were turned down... Uh, with contumely by the um, by the church uh, by the Chamberlain Ministry, uh, any time that uh, Roosevelt ever offered to be helpful in the 1930s, the um, the Conservative or National governments in Britain uh, ignored him and slapped him down. Churchill would not have done that. So there you have three certainly uh, things that might have staved off the um, the catastrophe of 1939. Um, oh, this is very. Uh, this is very nice. This is going to be very good for my ego. Um, <laughs> with all the recognition your bi biography has received, I haven't got any PR people in the audience. I hasten to add, uh, ladies and gentlemen. What about the book and its contribution to Churchillology? Um, are you the most proud? What are the biggest surprises when researching and, write, and, and writing the book? Um, well, thank you very much for that question. Um, I, I think, really, I'm the, the, if I allow the single thing I'm most proud of, I would say that it was um, that Her Majesty the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. 
Um, that is a, uh, there, are many, there are many new sources of uh, new information in this book. But that, I think, is the one, certainly in this country, which has grabbed the most, uh, the most uh, interest and attention. And it also grabbed my interest and attention um, enormously because the king wrote down everything that Churchill told him every Tuesday uh, when they met uh, for lunch every Tuesday of the Second World War. And um, they, had, uh, they had lunch at Buckingham Palace, and in that audience, um, the king was trusted by Churchill with all of the great secrets of the Second World War. And, uh, and so what we know now from these diaries is everything that was going through Churchill's mind every Tuesday of the Second World War. And that is, a, um, that is something that gave me a thrill, a bit like an electric shock going down my spine when I, uh, when I sat down and, um, and started to read those diaries. And uh, so I suppose that would be the um, that would be the answer, amongst many other um, uh, many other uh, fun stuff that's uh, that's in this book. Um, what about your what about your biography? If any, what about your biography? Sorry, if anything, would you change? Oh gosh, that's a good question as well. Um, I think that. Um, Actually, funny enough, it, it slightly ties into what I'm going to be speaking about in my next speech in, uh, of this series in October. Um, I'm going to call it uh, Churchill, the director's cut. And, uh, and I had to cut out at the very last minute um, when the, the publishers told me that if the book was, um, was not cut, if I didn't cut 60,000 words from the book immediately, um, then the stitching wouldn't work and the pages would fall out. Uh, I'm not for a moment pretending that this is a, this is a small book. It, clearly it isn't. But nonetheless, it was originally going to be 60,000 words longer. And so um, I had to cut out 60,000 words, which were just as good. The very fact that I put them in in the first place, they were just just as important, just as good, just as interesting as any other part of the, of the book. And um, uh, Churchill himself said that, uh, that cutting out words that you'd already written was like chopping off your own fingers. And, uh, and I certainly felt exactly that when I had to cut the 60,000 words out of, out of this book here. But what I thought I'd do in October is, um, is tell you the stories that are in there um, and, and basically you know, give you give you um, the bit of the book that I wasn't allowed to publish, but which uh, is just as interesting, just as important as, um, as the bits that stayed in. Um, please come. It would be nice to see you. <laughs> um, did you read all his books, articles during your research, and which book did you enjoy the most? Yes, I did. Um, if you take my research um, as being everything that I've... Um, read of Winston Churchill since I was at university and certainly since I started writing books about him 30 years ago. Um, I have read all his 37 um, books and his 800-plus articles. Um, I have to admit to you, ladies and gentlemen, I have not ploughed my way through all of his budget speeches. Um, these are tremendously uh, complicated financial statements made, um, made five of them when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. They are the Literally the only boring things that Churchill ever, ever said or read. He did fit in a few good jokes in some of them. Um, but, um, but no, when it comes to the, uh, um, to the uh, refinancing of local government uh, pursuant to the uh, supplementary estimates of 1925, I admit, uh, I, I didn't power my, my way through all of them. However, um, 
The last bit of the question is, what, which did you enjoy the most? And that is a completely impossible question to answer, owing to the fact that you never have to... First of all, apart from those budget speeches, Churchill could not write a boring sentence. He was, in, he was constitutionally incapable of writing a boring sentence. And so you know that within a couple of pages, certainly, whatever he's writing about, he's, you're going to come across some aperçu, some joke, some fabulous... Um, formation of language which is going to uh, leave you um, uh, profoundly envious, of course, um, but, um, but, uh, but very often profoundly moved as well. Um, and so um, I would say, if absolutely forced to, I would say that his autobiography, My Early Life, um, is my favourite uh, book of his. Um, it, uh, it is a, it is a, uh, the vitality of it, the excitement of it, the, the wit and humour, of course, and the message as well, um, the, um, the, the phraseology, but the, the, the central message, 20 to 25, those are the years, um, that one should grab life um, uh, as, a, as, a, as a young person and make the best of it, um, and uh, there are so many messages in that book that I think are just as true today as the day that they were written in 1930. Um, and, um, and the more I read that book, and it bears rereading, it really does, uh, as soon as you finish mine, um, <laughs> is uh, I think that that would stand out amongst a... Uh, amongst the, that, that is Mount Everest um, amongst a uh, host of Himalayan literary peaks. How many times did Churchill switch parties? Is this a very common practice among British politicians? Um, he switched, he only switched parties, only. It's a, it's a very unusual practice amongst British politicians. He switched parties twice, uh, moving from the um, Conservatives to the Liberals in 1904 and then back to the Conservatives in 1924. Um, he himself joked of it that um, anyone can rat, but it takes a certain ingenuity to re-rat. <laughs> and, um, uh, and the question is really about whether or not he did this out of um, opportunism because each time he moved from a party that was about to be out of office for a decade uh, to a party that was about to be in office for a decade or, and sometimes longer. Um, and so you can imagine that, uh, that many of his contemporaries accused him of uh, opportunism. But actually, when you look at the reasons that he did it, especially in 1904, when he was a free marketeer and a free trader, and, he, um, and the Conservative Party was moving against free trade, was in fact just about to impose a huge um, ta- series of tariffs. And he didn't believe in that, and so he, uh, he, he argued against it. And when it became clear that he had lost the argument, he, he left the party and, and joined another one. Um, that was a point of, of um, straightforward principle and was not uh, opportunistic. And when he went back into the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party had, to all intents and purposes, vanished. Um, it was, in 1924, nothing. It was a husk of its former self after David Lloyd George had been um, defenestrated from the, um, from the Premiership in October 1922. So there, too, you can see him very much returning to the Conservative Party of his youth, um, and his early years, and his father's party, of course, 
And there too, I think uh, it's perfectly reasonable to see that as a uh, as, as, as not an opportunistic thing to have done. Although, as I say, it did add to this sense of distrust that um, that I mentioned um, as one of the reasons that he never became prime minister before 1940. Was Churchill's 1945 election defeat a blessing in disguise? Um, that's a quotation, of course, from. Um, from Clementine Churchill, who, as the results were coming in of this disastrous catastrophe that had overcome uh, the Conservative Party in 19, on the 26th of July 1945, said, perhaps this is a blessing in disguise. And Churchill replied, well, from where I'm sitting, it seems quite effectively disguised. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, but um, the, uh, the, the question is a very good one. It was, in fact, undoubtedly a blessing in disguise for, for Churchill personally um, and, indeed, politically. Firstly, he was exhausted. He was utterly exhausted. He was in his early um, 70s. He had spent the last six years giving absolutely everything to the struggle. He had only taken eight days leave, eight days holiday during the whole of the Second World War. Um, and he was, um, he, was physically, um, he was physically exhausted. He needed to have long holidays, painting holidays, first in Lake Como and then in, um, in Morocco and elsewhere, the south of France, to, um, to, build up his, um, uh, to build up his strength. And the second thing was that the great struggles, the great political struggles of the next uh, five years were going to be ones that he was not well suited for. Um, the imposition of the... Um, first of all, of course, the withdrawal from empire would have... Uh, it did break his heart, and uh, he might well have tried to have prevented it, and that would have been a... Um, um, that would have been extremely difficult for him and for, and for Britain. Um, the uh, reorganisation of industry, the 16 million refu plus refugees, uh, the issue with what to do with them, um, the huge uh, demands for things like the, um, the nationalisation of the Bank of England, the creation of the welfare state, the creation of the National Health Service, and so on. These were not his strengths at all. They would not have played to his strengths at all, and in a sense, it was better for him to have been leader of the opposition whilst this was going on, rather than prime minister, um, because it would not have been his finest hour, frankly, had he been prime minister from 1945 to to 51. By the time he was um, able to win that general election in 1951, he was he was uh, ready for the new um, the new struggles, and all of these other issues had been uh, had been pretty much dealt with. I've got to give up now, have I? Okay, one more, one more. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Spain and Churchill during the Franco era and Spanish Civil War, what were his feelings? Um, well, his feelings were that although... Basically, Franco... General Franco, Francisco Franco, the dictator of uh, Spain from 1936 uh, till his death in 1975, uh, was a profoundly unpleasant um, man, a, a, a very um, vicious dictator, but he was also somebody who did not join the fascists, even though he was a fascist, did not join the Nazis during the Second World War. And Churchill recognised the appalling danger that his joining... 
uh, Hitler would have posed. Firstly, of course, we'd have lost Gibraltar and therefore the Straits of Gibraltar and therefore been unable to have got the Royal Navy into and out of the Mediterranean. That would have cut us off from Egypt. It would have therefore uh, threatened the Suez Canal and any attempt to uh, resupply India except via um, the African route, uh, the extraordinarily long uh, and dangerous African route. So keeping... Uh, Franco out of the Second World War, keeping him neutral, um, was one of the key uh, aspects of British intelligence. We did all sorts of things. We uh, handed huge, huge golf bags full of gold sovereigns uh, to generals of his. Um, they would go off golfing and come back with these enormous heavy bags full of, <laughs> full of gold uh, to, uh, to try to, uh, to get these generals to, um, to suggest to Franco that he should stay out of the war. As it was, Frank, when Franco met uh, Adolf Hitler at Hondai in um, 1940 in the October, I think it was, of 1940, Hitler came away, Hitler trying to persuade Franco to, to, uh, to get involved in the war, and Franco completely refusing to. Um, and, um, and Hitler said he'd never wanted to meet Franco again, and that talking to him was like having, um, going to the dentist unnecessarily. Um, and so, uh, and so, you have this sense. It's, it's a it, yes. He was a fascist dictator. Yes, Churchill did nothing to overthrow him when uh, he possibly could have, uh, if the West had come together uh, in 1945 to overthrow him. The Americans, by the way, were no more enthusiastic about trying to do that uh, than uh, than Churchill was. And so, this is an example of Churchill putting raison d'état, putting real politique uh, before. Um, the um, the um, thing that any Democrat would want to do. But um, when one looks at the numbers of people who had been killed in the Spanish Civil War between 36 and 39, um, not getting involved in that hornet's nest was possibly, uh, indeed probably, the right thing to have done back in 1945. It's a terrible thing to have to say, but nonetheless, I think Churchill was probably right. Ladies and gentlemen, see you in October. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.